Well, as we wait for everyone to come on back here, I just have a thought about God's providence over our study of John. If you believe in God's providence, he is governing and preserving uh, all things, um, all creatures and all things. And um, isn't it interesting that in a time of year where typically we would sort of look uh, at the coming of Jesus, our study of John has brought us to a place where we are uh, distinctly, specifically looking at the purpose of his coming, right? The death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. I don't think that's a, a coincidence. That's how God has just ordained our study. And uh, I think you should be encouraged by, uh, by that. <clears throat> we'll be in John chapter 20, John chapter 20 today, and we will finish up the chapter. It's a lengthy piece today. One of the reasons we just kind of moved communion off one week, it's usually the first Sunday of the month, we moved to next week is the, uh, the length of the passage before us today. But also next week is that passage where Jesus will appear to his disciples and have breakfast with them by the sea. And I thought, well, that would be a special week to share communion as we go through that passage. So we will observe that next week. So plan ahead for that. But we'll be in John chapter 20, beginning of verse 11 today. And thus far in our study, as we've, as we've sort of really kind of from crucifixion on, we've seen the, the crucifixion of Jesus, we've seen the death of Jesus, we've seen the burial of Jesus, and we've seen the empty tomb of Jesus, but we have yet to see Jesus, <laughs> right? We've yet to see the resurrected Jesus, and the reason is John has held that back until the end, and this, this, this section today is the end, Some of you might be going, well, but there's another chapter. There's chapter 21. There is a chapter 21. It is commonly looked at as an epilogue to John's gospel. If you remember when we began this study, the first five verses of John's gospel in chapter 1 are looked at as a prologue to his entire gospel. Chapter 21 is looked at as the epilogue to his gospel. So really the culmination of his gospel is the passage we have before us today. It is the heart of the gospel. It is the resurrected Jesus. This is where we've been going the whole time. Uh, Last week, I told you to remember a lot of the evidence that we were presenting for the truth of the resurrection through his death and and burial, and then even the empty tomb. Um, And the reason, because there were many theories that have been proposed through the centuries, and I've kind of, I shared a little bit about uh, some of those, but I wanted to maybe go in a little more detail today. Um, one of the popular theories was uh, known as the swoon theory, uh, the proposals that Jesus did not die on the cross, uh, that he uh, just went into a, a coma-like state due to shock and blood loss, and so he only appeared to be dead on the cross. He was taken down, he was buried alive in the tomb, and then in the coolness of the tomb and with the effect of the spices that he was wrapped in, uh, he was revived. And so then he left the tomb. He met the disciples where they mistakenly assumed that he had risen from the dead. Now, I've been told that one myself. I've had a skeptic actually tell me that's probably what happened. There is an older article, 1986 it was written, but it was in, written in the Journal of the uh, American Medical Association and it was published as an article of the findings by, by three medical experts, one of them a pathologist, um, after they studied the procedures of scourging and uh, crucifixion and their effects on the victim. And as you read a very detailed and graphic description of both of those procedures and the effects they have on the victims, the conclusion reached by the team was this. Accordingly, Interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Um, What Jesus went through before the cross and on the cross would just completely go against everything we know about modern medical science today. I mentioned that to you, that there's no way that Jesus going through what he'd gone through, if he were to survive, could unwrap himself from the linen cloths, roll away the stone, overpower the guards, walk three miles into the street of Emmaus, right, on crucified feet. It just couldn't happen. But in addition to that, let's look at the evidence that John has presented. Because John is writing this as an eyewitness. And he talks about the Roman executioners there, right? The Roman executioners were experts in determining death. 
And you might remember that they saw that he was already dead, meaning he was no longer lifting himself up to get the breath as he was on the cross. If you remember the end of chapter uh, 19, verse, verse 30, it said he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he looked as if he was dead because he was no longer lifting himself up to get a breath because most victims died by asphyxiation. They, they, they suffocated. And that was the entire reason for that curifragium procedure. They would go and break the legs of the criminals. They broke their legs so that they could no longer breathe. They wanted to hasten death. And they used that procedures on the criminals, but when they got to Jesus, it looked as if he were already dead. And because it looked like he was dead, they conducted a test to see whether or not he was really dead. And it was the spear in his side test. If you remember last week, we looked at that. It was in verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. This, they knew what they were doing. It was a test to sort of see the condition of the pericardial sac that was around the heart. It, it could have burst or filled up with blood due to the trauma that Jesus had endured. And so they punctured that side to verify whether or not he was dead. And what John does right after that, he doesn't quote some Old Testament scripture to say, see, blood and water flowed out just like Isaiah said. Instead, he says in verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John writes that account because number one, he's at the foot of the cross. He's close enough to see the blood and water. And he wants to tell you that he saw Jesus die. He's an eyewitness to the fact. We also have heard such theories as the wrong tomb theory. Maybe you've heard this one. This is the theory that the women went to the wrong tomb to begin with. And so when they went back to get Peter and John, then Peter and John went to the wrong tomb and everyone mistakenly presumed that Jesus had risen. That's the wrong tomb theory. Well, first of all, they didn't presume he had risen. If you read the gospels, no one, no one presumed Jesus had rose from the dead. So that's wrong from the beginning. The only one that was convinced that Jesus had rose from the dead is John. If you look back to chapter 20, verse 8, we looked at this last week. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, that was John, he outran Peter, went in also and he saw and believed. Now, you guys, this is absolutely key for why John is presenting what he's going to present today. John is the only one out of everyone that believed the reason that the tomb was empty was because Jesus rose from the dead. No one else had that thought. Mary didn't have that thought. The disciples did not have that thought. John did, and he alone had that thought. Mary's thought was that the body was stolen, wasn't it? If you look back to chapter 20, verse 2, that's the whole reason she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. And what did she say? They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Does she think Jesus rose from the dead? Well, no. She thinks the body was stolen. Now, here's another thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the women observed uh, where they laid him. They observed the location of the tomb. In Matthew 27, verse 60 and 61, it says this, they laid it in, speaking of the body, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Mark gives us the same information, Mark 15, 47. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. And Luke 23, 55. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So all three gospel writers there tell us the women saw where the tomb was. So they couldn't have gone to the wrong tomb. In addition to that, the religious leaders sealed the tomb. <laughs> Do you remember that? They sealed it to prevent a he's risen fraud, right? In Matthew 27, 64 to 65, this is what's written. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So the very request by the Pharisees, that's, what they're, uh, that's them speaking here, to make sure that the tomb is secure helps um, us with the proof of the tomb. We have the right tomb. 
The wrong tomb theory doesn't hold water. You add to that the fact that Joseph of Arimathea buried the body suggests the tomb's location. In addition, a wrong tomb theory has never, never been a suggestion by any source of antiquity. If they had the wrong tomb, think about this. Once the disciples started going around saying they saw the risen Jesus, wouldn't you think the religious leaders would go to the real tomb, pull out the body and say, well, here he is. The reason they didn't do that, they had the correct tomb and it was empty. The empty tomb is a massive problem, a massive problem for people. The empty tomb has been blamed on, oh, well, someone else stole the body because they can't um, defend the empty tomb. Someone else must have stolen it. But what we see last week, we saw the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in lying there. We saw the handkerchief around his face folded up in a separate place. Certainly not something some grave robbers would have done, particularly when they just overpowered some Roman guards, right, and had potentially the um, capture coming by more Roman guards, right? They would just tear those things off. They'd be all over the place, and they would have run off. The empty tomb is a fact, and the religious leaders acknowledge that. In Matthew 28, 12 to 15, it says, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The tomb was empty. It's empty. Now, here's a few more problems with this theory and one we don't talk about very often, but here's what it can't account for. It can't account for the conversion of the church persecutor, Paul, who was converted based upon the appearance of Christ. It cannot account for the conversion of the skeptic James, the half-brother of Jesus, which was based upon the appearance of Christ. It can't account for the sudden change of belief in the disciples, which is based upon the appearance of Christ. So while we've amassed all this evidence for Jesus' death and his burial and the evidence for the empty tomb, it's the appearances of Jesus that provide the conclusive evidence. It brought belief. It brought conversion. It's the appearances that are the most convincing proof. Now, to be sure, many have tried to discredit then the appearances. They've done away with the swoon theory. They've done away with the wrong tomb and empty tomb thing. Let's instead discredit the appearances. Hallucinations, an illusion, or a delusion have been some of the things that have been presented. Um, Theories of hallucinations. Hallucination is just a a false perception of something that is not there, right? You you think you see something that isn't actually there. Um, An illusion is a distorted perception of something that is there. And a delusion is just a false belief, right? You believe something even contrary to the the facts. I think it was 1997, there were 37 people that committed suicide because they were under the delusion that the Haley-Bopp comet had a spaceship behind it, right? And it would pick them up. They were deluded, right? They didn't see it. They didn't hallucinate it. They had a false belief about it. And so these things have been presented as possibilities for the disciples, a hallucination can't account for the conversion of Paul, which was, he was a persecutor of the church and he saw the risen Jesus Christ and he was in no emotional state as the disciples were. In fact, he was against the church, right? He wasn't looking for any kind of uh, hope or relief. He thought he was doing the right thing. It can't account for the skeptic James when scripture, you know, what it gives us about him. There's no indication that he was grief stricken over the death of his brother. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And people don't have group hallucinations. They're personal, they're individual, they're distinct. There are variances to what people hallucinate about. And there are, as we'll see today, several instances where the resurrected Jesus appears to groups of people. In fact, the scriptures give us 10 resurrection appearances. Now, I have a form for you that's a a resurrection to ascension timeline. So it's not just the appearances, but it kind of pieces the other things together that we've been talking about. Keep it handy because I will make a reference to it as we go along the way. But just to begin with, the actual appearances are are in bold italicized font. And it begins in number six. Do you see it there? Jesus' first appearance. It's to Mary Magdalene as she returned to the tomb. 
Number seven is his second appearance as he appeared to the other women, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. The third appearance is number nine. He appeared to Peter. Now, some uh, commentators put that, flip-flop that with number four because you don't know exactly when he would appear to Peter. That just comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 5. The fourth is number 10. That's when he appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. The fifth is number 12, where he appeared to the, the 10 apostles with Thomas being absent in the upper room. Number 13 is the sixth appearance where he appears again now to the 11 apostles because Thomas is with them. Then number 14, the seventh appearance, he appears to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. The eighth appearance, number 15, appears to 500 people at the mountain in Galilee. Number nine, number 16, he appears to his half-brother James. And the tenth appearance, number 17 there, at Jerusalem, again, he appears to his disciples. And right after that, they follow him to the Mount of Olives where he ascends to heaven. So hang on to that. That will be helpful today because we're going to see some of the appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Now, going back to John being an eyewitness, he picks just a few of those instances. In fact, we're only going to see the first um, uh, uh, instance of the resurrection, the fifth and sixth today. And next week, we'll look at the seventh. But those are the only ones that John uh, covers. We'll see today his appearance to Mary Magdalene, his appearance to the 10 apostles, and then his appearance to Thomas. Obviously, it's with all apostles there, but his purpose is to meet Thomas because Thomas was not there in that um, second appearing there. So let's, let's look at this. We're going to read the passage today. It's verses 11 to 31. It's a lengthy section, so uh, get comfortable. <laughs> Chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. God, we just pray today for our time in your word. What a powerful passage we have before us, Lord. And so we need the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to open up our eyes to the deep 
and wonderful truths of the resurrection of Christ here today before us, Lord. These things are written, and they're written that we may believe that you rose from the dead, that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God. Lord, help our unbelief today. Open up our eyes to the truth of your word for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, let's get started here. His appearance to Mary Magdalene. First, Mary um, is named uh, Mary Magdalene because she's probably from Magdala, which is a village along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee up near Tiberias. And she is not a prominent figure in the gospel accounts. She does figure prominently in the resurrection, in the crucifixion scenes there. But um, her name only appears uh, in a list of women who followed Jesus. But in each of the resurrection accounts, she is present and uh, she is named. And the amazing thing is that this woman is the, is the one person Jesus chooses to appear to first. And it's also the first appearance that John wants to highlight. He wants to highlight this appearance. And I think there's a massive, massive reason for that. It's because there's only one that has believed that Jesus rose at this point, and it is John. It's not Mary. John has peeked into the tomb. He has seen the tomb, tomb empty, and he has believed. He has believed. Now, last we saw Mary, she had left the tomb because she saw that the stone had been rolled away, right? That's what it said. The stone had been rolled away, and then she ran. Um, but she had to know that the body was missing because of what she tells the disciples. They've taken away his body. doesn't say she peeked in, but she had to know the body wasn't there somehow. So she does declare to Peter and John that the body is missing. Now we find her that she's back at the tomb. Last we saw her, she was there with Peter and John. Well, why? Why is she here? Well, think about this. If you went and reported news like this to a couple of guys, Peter and John, and they just take off, what are you going to do? You're going to follow, right? You're going to go right after them. But they're running, right? They had a foot race, John tells us, and John beats Peter to the tomb. So she follows Peter and John back to the tomb. They would have arrived earlier because they ran. And now John picks up the narrative where they have already left the tomb. They've already peeked inside. John has already believed. And Mary is sitting outside and she is weeping. Now look at verse 12. And she saw two, uh, well, look at verse 11 again. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and she wept and she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So she's looked in possibly a second time now. Now verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them. Okay, so she looks inside, and this time she sees something new that she didn't see before. A couple of guys sitting in there. It says two angels in white. Now, she would not recognize them as angels. John is telling us, the audience, that they are angels. She does not like, as you see in a lot of the pictures, see two beings with big, you know, wings fluttering about inside the tomb. And the reason is because the humans, uh, or, sorry, the angels often appeared as human form, right? They appeared as a men. Um, if she saw that, we probably have a whole different description. She'd be running and screaming some more, you know? Um, the visions that people had of angels, many times in visions, we see angels with wings, right? They're winged beings. But when they appear in physical form, and we see that all through the Old Testament as well, they appear as humans. So these are two men. They're physically present. This is not a hallucination either. It is true she's been weeping, right? But the other women saw these same angels at the tomb as well. If you look at your chart that I gave you, you can see that in verse uh, 4. The other women remaining at the tomb saw the two angels who told them about their resurrection. Remember I told you last week. She, all the women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, but she is the only one that's mentioned as going before, uh, before the sunrise. It's still dark. Now, possibly, she got there early enough to see that the, tomb, the stone was rolled away, um, or they kind of roughly got there at the same time. But either way, she took off to get Peter and John. The others stayed there. And they discovered the angels. They had the conversation with the angels. The other women already knew that. So their grief has already subsided because the angels have told them about the resurrection, but not Mary. She's been over there with Peter and John. All right? So Peter and John have now come back. The women are gone. Um, and then Mary has come back uh, as well. 
So they're all there. She hasn't hallucinated this because the same thing has happened to these other women. And these angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? That's a question that's of significance because it's asked of her twice. I think on the surface, it seems like a silly question. What do you mean, why am I weeping, right? I'm here for Jesus, he's gone. But the question is meant to be a gentle rebuke because the time for weeping is over. The weeping happened at the cross. We're at an empty tomb and it's a time for rejoicing. Do you see this? Don't be weeping. But her despair here is not due to not... Uh, is, is due to just not knowing where her body's, uh, the, the body of her Lord is. She, she wants to make sure the body of her Lord has a decent burial. And that's what she says. Because they've taken away my Lord, I don't know where they have laid him. She's distraught over the fact that the body is gone. Look at verse 14. Now, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us if the angels sort of gave her like a, one of those head nods like, Hey, look behind you, you know, like, or, or she just suddenly maybe felt the presence of Jesus and turned. In any case, she was aware of something and she turned and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And I've read many, many suggestions as to why she didn't recognize him. Um, some say because she didn't expect to see him because in her mind, he's dead. That's certainly true. You wouldn't expect to see somebody you just buried, right? That would be a shock. It might take your mind a bit to catch up with what you're seeing. Some have said it's because his appearance has changed. That is certainly true as well because we, um, we do know that the resurrection body would have been uh, glorious. It's certainly different um, and, and certainly compared to the battered and bloody body that she had seen buried, right? That would be a big uh, difference. Some have said her, her eyes were just so blurred from the tears because you know, she'd been weeping so much. All of those things certainly could be factors. But I think there's one overriding factor, and we find it in another passage, and I need you to turn there. It's in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, this is another appearance of Jesus. Now, this appearance of Jesus would have been the fourth appearance of Jesus. It's on number 10 on your sheet when he appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, look at verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Do you see that? So Jesus walks up and he starts walking with them. And Luke tells us their eyes were restrained. And as you read on, it tells how they kind of walked and talked together. And then Jesus basically opened up their minds to the scriptures that they would see um, that all these things had to happen according to the scriptures. Now look down to verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. I think probably the most important reason that she cannot recognize him right now is that she is being temporarily prevented from seeing him as who he is, just as we saw the two men on the road to Emmaus. She doesn't recognize who he is, not until the right moment. In verse 15, Jesus wants to ask her a question. Look, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? There's the same question. But then another question, whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So Jesus asks that same question, woman, why are you, why are you weeping? And he knows it's related to him. Whom are you seeking? It's because she wants Jesus's body. She's concerned that he have a proper burial. And she responds such, I just want his body. If you took it, give it to me. I want to take care of it. That's all that Jesus needs to hear. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Now, I love that it only took one word for her to recognize him because Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse four, that the sheep would hear his voice. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary is all she needed to hear. 
She heard the voice of her shepherd. She heard the voice of her Lord. Mary is all she needs. And you know what? That's all you need, right? We know the voice of our shepherd. We know the voice of our Lord. We know how he sounds. How do we know that? Because of the time we spend with him, right? And she spent time with him as well. She followed him. She loved him. And her response of Rabboni is a strengthened form of rabbi. It really means uh, honored teacher. It's not just teacher. It's a great teacher, honored teacher. But it's not all that happens. She, she says that, but obviously something else takes place based upon his, his response in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. She has physically reacted as well, not just verbally. She's clung to him. Now, if you have a King James version, um, it's rendered, touch me not. Maybe you have that, right? Touch me not. And I think that version has led many to believe that he, he could not be touched. There was something about his body and you, and you couldn't touch him. But the other women he appeared to were able to touch him in Matthew 28, 9. Thomas, as we'll see in a few minutes, was able to touch him. It's not that he could not be touched. He could be touched. That was not his point. Her clinging to him physically symbolizes something, doesn't it? It symbolizes her desire for him to remain with them permanently. But Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. That's not how Jesus is going to interact with believers anymore. He promised all that in the upper room. I'm not going to be with you physically, right? I'm going to go away with you, and in a little while, I'll return to you. But he's not going to return. He's going to send who? The Holy Spirit. That's it. So he can be touched, but we have a whole different thing taking place here. This is a new era. This is a new covenant. And this is post-resurrection Jesus. He has also a different relationship with his followers. And that's what he describes here. Look what he says. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The new relationship here is this. The physical presence of Jesus is not his real presence for the church. That's not what we have today. We just read it in 1 Peter, right? Though you believe, though you do not see him, we believe. It's not the physical presence of Jesus. It's a new relationship that would begin ultimately with his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. In addition here, The disciples are now considered brethren. Did you see that? Go to my brethren. This is the first mention of that relationship in scripture, my brethren. He has called them his slaves before. He's called them his friends before, but he's not called them brethren. He's not called them brethren. But this makes sense because a new relationship with Christ is only made possible through Christ and through his work on the cross, right? Remember Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 14 to 15. Paul writes this, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So we are sons of God because he is now our father, right? And if he is our father, then Jesus is our brethren, right? And Jesus, that is spoken of in Hebrews 2.11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God is our father, we're his sons, therefore we are Jesus' brethren as well. There's a new relationship here. And because we have a new relationship, we have a new responsibility. We have a new responsibility, and that's what he is getting at here. He tells Mary, I'm ascending to my father, right? I need you to go to my brethren and tell them that. I've, ri- I've risen from the dead, and I'm going. There's a whole new era that I'm beginning here. And that is the responsibility we have as well. It's to testify the risen Christ. We were talking about this in the prayer meeting this morning. I said, do you, do you think about that sometimes, how crazy it is that we believe someone rose from the dead? But we do. Because of the truth of Scripture, we testify to the fact of his risen presence. And here, Mary is being instructed uh, going forward. I found a wonderful just meditation Um, on maybe Mary's reaction here by J.C. Ryle. He said this, she made too little of his divinity and too much of his humanity. And hence she called forth our Lord's gentle rebuke, touch me not, 
There is no need of this excessive demonstration of feeling. I'm not yet ascending to my father for 40 days. Your present duty is not to linger at my feet, but to go and tell my brethren that I have risen. Think of the feelings of others as well as of your own. I love that. I have others that are hurting. I want you to go tell them the truth. I want you to go tell them the truth. Now, isn't it amazing that Jesus chose to reveal his, you think about John's gospel, he chose to reveal his messiahship, that he was the messiah first to a woman at a well. Do you remember that? That was the first person he told that he was the Messiah, a woman at the well. Here, the first person he appears to is a woman. Gives her the responsibility of declaring his resurrection. And what that does, it shatters the prejudices of the day. Um, it's an act also, I think, of the, uh, an evidence of the historicity of John's gospel. And here's why. No Jewish author living in the ancient world would have documented this and put as proof, right, women as the eyewitnesses. They wouldn't have done that because they would not have been credible eyewitnesses in that ancient time. Their testimony would have been discarded. I mean, he would have been, instead, I would have, I would have wrote, you know, he appeared to Pilate or he appeared to Caiaphas and said, how do you like them apples, you know? But, or even one of his disciples, but he chooses here this woman we don't even know much about. Maybe one of the reasons he sought her out specifically was because of how earnestly she sought him out. She was there at the foot of the cross, and she was there at his tomb before it was dark. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. I don't think you should get concerned about the fact that he says, my God and your God. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses might want to make a big problem of that, that Jesus is declaring that he's his God. Paul doesn't seem to have a problem with it when he talks about uh, the father as being the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the father of glory, Ephesians 1.17. He is saying that he is the father and he is God. And likewise, he is your father and your God. Now look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So Mary does go back and tells the disciples. And what is their response to this? Well, their response is given us in Luke 24.11. Their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Now, it says their words is because the other women joined Mary. All of them, in Luke's account, are shown to be back at the disciples, telling them that they've seen uh, the risen Jesus. And the reason is, if you look at number seven, Jesus appeared to the other women as well. Do you see that? And that is written in Matthew 28, 8 to 10. So the first appearance is to Mary. The second appearance is to the other women. And all of them go back to the disciples and say, you're not going to believe this, but we just saw Jesus. And they think you're making this up. You're telling idle tales. They, uh, they didn't believe them. But John, John does believe. And that's why John puts forth Mary's testimony first. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, who came and testified to these things. Now look at his appearance to the 10 apostles. Look at verse 19. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So the scene now shifts to the evening of the same day. It's Sunday evening. Um, and the word says the doors were, were closed or shut. The word shut, kleo, can also mean locked. Um, they are locked in because they fear the Jews. They probably expect the temple police to come in and arrest them at any moment. Um, but instead, Jesus just a, appears in their midst. And this is the first indication that his resurrected body m has some kind of different power. The doors are locked and he's just there, right? He vanished from the two men um, in Emmaus as well. Don doesn't cover that account, but we see that he just, he just disappeared in front of them. So there's certainly something different about his, his, the ability of this resurrected body. And he appears before them. He says these words, peace be with you. Now, don't, no doubt these words are meant to calm their fears because Luke tells us they were frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. Um, but I think these words have a, a deeper, richer meaning. Romans 5.1 tells us that, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that Jesus declares here is the peace with God. Peace with God that is accomplished through what Jesus has done. Man and God no longer separated, but peace, at peace. 
because of the finished work of the cross. And Jesus declared that from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. So he says, peace be with you. And then verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, John doesn't go to give us more details. It took a little bit more convincing than that. If you go back to Luke chapter 24, real briefly, um, we'll just look at that. Matthew 24, verse 36. It's the last time we'll go back to this. But he gives us a little bit more description as to what else Jesus had to do to maybe convince them. Chapter 24, verse 36, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you, verse 37. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So they took a little bit more convincing. He had to show them his body. He had to say, handle my body. You can actually touch and see. And then he said, I'll just give me some food. All right, I'll I'll eat it to show you that I'm I'm not some kind of spirit. I'm not some kind of... uh, ghost. Though details are there specifically to show us that Jesus is there in physical form. He's there in physical form. And John just simply tells us that he showed him his hands, he showed him his side, and they were glad. They knew that it was the Lord. I think this is noteworthy. I think it provides proof against that hallucination theory again, right? That you wouldn't all hallucinate over the same thing. If we were all stranded at sea on a raft right? Because we were waiting for rescue. Because we, our deep down desire was we all want rescue. One of us could stand up and go, I see a ship, right? And maybe I could probably convince some of you to say, do you see the ship too? You probably could like, yeah, I can see the ship, right? But would you see the same flag? Would you see the same uh, name on the ship? Would you see the same number of smokestacks? Would you see the same thing? You wouldn't. You'd imagine whatever kind of ship you see, right? I might see an ocean liner. You might see a speedboat, but they all saw the same thing. This is not a group hallucination. It's also proof against the swoon theory. Could you imagine that? Jesus comes wobbling in, right? Here, stick your hands in my side. Be careful. Seriously? You, you wouldn't be doing it. Don't touch me. Get me to a doctor. Quick. Lee Strobel famously wrote a book called The Case for Christ. I definitely recommend you write it, uh, read it. And he, he says this, after suffering that horrible abuse with all the catastrophic blood loss and trauma, he would have looked so pitiful that the disciples would never have hailed him as victorious conqueror of death. They would have felt sorry for him and tried to nurse him back to health. So it's preposterous to think that if he had appeared to them in that awful state, his followers would have been prompted to start a worldwide movement based on the hope that someday they too would have a resurrected body like his. So true. Why would you start such ridiculous nonsense? No, they saw the resurrected body of Jesus. And so they were at peace. They were at peace. So at once at peace with the fact that he is really there, they finally are able to listen to him. And he says some very important words here. We're going to take our time with this. 21, 22, and 23. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What is going on here? Well, three things. First, I think Jesus is is formally commissioning his disciples. He's going to send send them out. Secondly, I think there's a ceremonial thing happening. It's a ceremonial empowering of the Holy Spirit. And third, he is delegating authority to his apostles. So let me break this down. Verse 21, you see his, his uh, formally commissioning his, his apostles. Verse 21 just says, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
So over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus has constantly stated over and over again that he was there at the will of the Father to accomplish the will of the Father, sent by the Father, right? To do all the will of the Father. So as I have done that, now I am also sending you. Matthew 28 says the same thing, right? Right? You're going to go and make disciples of all nations. He's commissioned them uh, to do that. But in order for them to be successful in that, they're going to need power behind that. And so this is what he does here, verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So what is this? How can I say it's a ceremonial empowering of his apostles? Because he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He he breathed on them. How do we know that this puff of air from Jesus is just a ceremonial act? Well, Jesus has risen from the dead. It's a new era. It's a new covenant. And under the new covenant era, every believer, every believer is permanently indwelt. We're permanently empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? That's what we get from the New Testament. And that is a profoundly different uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit than you see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the ministry to the saints is not as universal. It's not as prominent. It's very specific. It's on specific individuals for specific things. Bezalel, you're going to go and build a tabernacle, and you're going to have gifts to do that. You know, David, you're going to be my king. And, and the Spirit is put on those whom he needs to. But in the new era, in the new covenant, every believer is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Gospels are clear that the Holy Spirit, in addition to this, would not be given until Jesus was glorified. In John chapter 7, verse 39, he said this, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now you can look at this and go, but isn't Jesus glorified? Because he's in his glorified body, right? So he is glorified. So certainly he can give the Spirit. Well, it's not his body that gives him glory. Jesus, Jesus never says, oh, Father, give me a glorified body so that I can give you glory. What did Jesus pray? In John chapter 17, verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Where does Jesus get his glory? When he's going to be returned to the Father, he's going to be glorified. That's the glorified state. That's where John has been pointing. That's what Jesus has been looking at. He's been looking beyond the cross. Now the Son of Man is glorified. He's been looking at returning to the Father. Does that make sense? So his glorified state is after he ascends to heaven. Now, this is key because Paul also says in Ephesians 4, and he's quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He quotes that in that context that Jesus has gone up to heaven, he's ascended to heaven, and then the gifts came to men. And you add on to that Jesus' very words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he doesn't say you did receive power earlier. Acts 1.8 is, is 40 days later. He says you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit has not yet come. Jesus will promise that, uh, that it will come later. And in addition, I think this illustration is an affirmation of Christ's deity. Just as God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, we have a new era, a new covenant, and Jesus breathes on them this, this new life. We are new creatures in Christ. We are new creations. We have been regenerated. Nicodemus needed to be born from above, born again. You have new life. Receive the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that they have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell them to wait around for that until Pentecost. That comes later. It's a ceremonial, symbolic gesture by Jesus. And the third thing he is doing, he's delegating authority to his apostles in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Um, boy, there's a lot here. What does this verse mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Um, it doesn't mean, as the Roman Catholic Church has misinterpreted, that the apostles had the power to forgive sins and since have passed down that power through church apostles, that apostles and priests have the power to forgive 
sins. That's not what this means. Scripture teaches that it is God alone who forgives sins. Further to that, Luke 24, 33 tells us that there were other people present in addition to the 11 apostles in this room. So if the whole point was to give the apostles power to forgive sins, well, then you'd have to give everybody in the room power to forgive sins. And it's not just the apostles. So you got trouble there. But the New Testament does not record one single instance of an apostle or anyone else absolving people of their sins. You read your Bible cover to cover, you do not find that. So then the question is, what does it mean? Because he says, if you forgive sins, right? The sins will be forgiven. I mean, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Let me remind you of Matthew 16, 19. This is a good launching place. Jesus said these words, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you remember those words by Jesus, right? This establishment of the church and Peter, right? And on, on the truth of his declaration, I'm going to build the church, and then whatever you bind on earth, and on and on, he says. So he declares that to Peter. He declares that to the 12, and really by all extension, by all, all believers, that they have authority to declare who is bound in sin and who is not based upon the authority we get from God's word. Meaning this, when we declare whether a person is forgiven or not based upon their gospel um, salvation response, heaven agrees with that. If you present the gospel and say, this is the only way to receive forgiveness of sins, believe in Jesus Christ, confess your sins, believe that he died and rose again, right? There's forgiveness of sins, and they deny that. You can, with the authority of scripture, say, you have not been forgiven. Do you agree? Because there's only one way to be forgiven. It's not based on my authority. It's not based on my uh, knowledge of the condition of their heart, right? It's not based on some kind of power I have. It's based upon the authority of God's word and the gospel. I'm not losing you, am I? So we can present the gospel and say, this is the one way to ensure forgiveness of sins. And when you accept it, then you can say, you have been forgiven. If someone says, I'm a believer, I don't go to them, oh, you haven't been forgiven of your sins. I go, you have been forgiven. Why? I don't know their heart, but I know the gospel. You see the distinction? That's the truth there. And that's the one reason I think people call Christians arrogant, because how boldly we uh, claim the truth, but we don't claim it based upon our own authority or knowledge. We claim that based upon the authority of God's word. A great example of this is in Matthew 18. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just tell you, Matthew 18 is uh, an example of this because he uses the same phrasing speaking about the um, what have you bind on earth and what have you bound in heaven kind of thing. But it's Matthew 18, beginning verse 15. So much of this is misunderstood often. But Matthew 18, verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, so this is, uh, this is church discipline. This is when someone in church has sinned against you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell them his, his, him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, now this is key, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Do you see that? Assuredly, and then here's the verse, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Here's the context of what he's talking about. It's church discipline. And when you go to someone and you ask for repentance and you follow the procedure here and you take someone else and then you take someone else and then you go to the church and they still don't repent, you can, with the authority of God's word, treat them as a heathen and tax collector. You can say they have not repented. They have not been forgiven. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound. So you basically are saying heaven agrees, heaven agrees, not with an individual's um, um, uh, conclusion of that, but two or three. Heaven agrees because the authority of God's word is present. And obviously the two or three coming together there speaks of that. I know we always use it about, oh, God's in our presence where two or three come together. Can I tell you, if you have the Holy Spirit, God's in your presence, whether or not you're with two or three together, right? You don't have to wake up in the morning and go down to neighbor's house and find someone to pray with and say, oh, I need God in my presence, so better pray with me. You can do that alone. <laughs> 
But, and the context here is saying two or three coming together, seeking the Lord, seeking repentance, seeking clarity, seeking wisdom, can with God's authority say their sins have not been forgiven because they haven't repented. Does that make sense? And that's the authority that he is giving the apostles going forward. That carries on into the church. Where it goes wrong is the power to forgive sins because only God has the power to forgive sins. The Roman Catholic Church got that one wrong. So he is simply preparing them for the ministry that they're going to have. He's commissioning them. You're going to go forward in power. You're going to go forward with authority. All that will happen at Pentecost. They'll have everything they need. All right, let's move on. He's finally going to appear to Thomas here in verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas called the twin. Uh, One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. (laughs) Poor Thomas, he just gets, he's just known as the pessimist, isn't he? That guy, Thomas, you know, you think back to John 11 when uh, Jesus was in Perea because the Jews were trying to kill him and he hears word of of Lazarus being sick. And so he's, ah, we better go back. You remember Thomas's response to that? Okay, well, let's all go with him so we can all die. You know, obviously... This is a futile mission. Uh, He's just the pessimist guy, and here he is again. In fact, it's not just that the disciples told him once, oh, hey, we saw Jesus. The word said there is lego. So yeah, lego appears in the Bible. You'll be happy to know, lego, L-E-G-O. It means to affirm over and over. It means to maintain. And you'll see that this is eight days later in verse 26. Every day they're saying, we saw, I'm just telling you, we saw him. He was there. We did that. They're telling him over and over again. And he is maintaining his stance. I'm not going to believe. So don't get in your mind, it was just a one-off. They said, oh, and he kind of passed by. Every single day, he is, he's putting his fingers in his ears. I'm not going to believe. No, 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 I can't hear you, can't hear you. Because I'm not going to believe until my, I, I touch him myself. That's the guy. That's who we see here. They repeatedly affirm to him over and over again. And he demands proof. He remains unconvinced. So look at verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. So here we are. If you're looking at your sheet again, we're, we're here at number 13, the sixth uh, appearance there. So we've uh, seen number five there. He appeared to the 10. We've just learned Thomas wasn't with him. So now we're on the sixth appearance. And he just like before, appears in a room where there are locked doors. And then he says in verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's amazing here that he goes straight to Thomas, straight to Thomas. Thomas demanded proof and Jesus enters the room and instantly gives him proof. Isn't he gracious? He met Thomas right where he was. He offered him the evidence that he demanded. And I think the reason is this. I think Thomas's doubt, I think his fear was connected to his love for Jesus. It wasn't without his love. He loved, he loved Jesus. And because he loved Jesus, Jesus was willing to meet him there. I know you're doubting. I know you're fearing right now. I'm just going to show you. You want that evidence? I'm going to give it to you. He's a gracious God. So he appears in this room, particularly for him, at least from John's perspective, he came in and said, Thomas, uh, Thomas, get up here, (laughs) all right? I see you hiding back there. I want you to touch here. I want you to touch here. I I want you to be at peace. I want you to see it is truly me. And Thomas's response is the pinnacle of John's gospel. Look what he says in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. His uh, skepticism, his unbelieving, gave way to belief and to uh, a declaration of faith. And he had the physical, tangible evidence available to him. So did the disciples. So did Mary. But Jesus' response, we, we hear something here. There's a special blessing that's promised to those who believe without the benefit of the physical evidence. Look at verse 29. Look at his response to him. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think this is a dig at Thomas because the disciples had to see him too. The other disciples had to see him. Thomas had to see him. Mary had to see him. He said, you believe and you've seen, but guess what? There's going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to be especially blessed 
because they'll believe and they'll not have seen. Guess who those people are? They're in this room. <laughs> we have believed. We have not seen. Does it? I'm just guessing. No one here has seen Jesus, right? Okay. So I don't want to presume. Um, we haven't seen his resurrected body. But Jesus says there's a special blessing. Blessed are those. It's the same thing we see in the Beatitudes. Blessed. You're blessed because you've believed even though you haven't seen. You're blessed because you haven't had the physical evidence. It's amazing. It's promised to all who believe on the basis of the proclaimed gospel and the evidences for its validity like we've presented through our study here. And we read earlier 1 Peter chapter 1, right? Verse, verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You, you don't see him. Even Peter was writing to people, you, you don't see him, but you believe. And because you believe, there's, there's an extra special measure of joy. There's an extra special, I think, uh, measure of God's grace in being able to understand the resurrection. And because of that, you receive the salvation of your souls. That's the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we're not deprived today because we no longer have the physical evidence. Instead, we have a greater measure of the Holy Spirit to empower faith in the resurrection. And Thomas's confession and Jesus's response are just a perfect lead into John's summary statement, which we've looked at several times throughout our study. So let's look at it again. Verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I think John's purpose of including the signs, of which he chose only seven, remember, uh, was to lead people to believe in Jesus Christ and so have life. Many people over the centuries have tried to rationalize Jesus' miracles. They have tried to deny his bodily resurrection. But John has systematically constructed his gospel in order to provide irrefutable proof. And I think he performs, he says, many other signs here. Jesus did many other signs. The gospels, when you put them together, there's 35 different miracles. John just picked seven, and he ends with the most amazing miracle of all, the resurrection of of Christ here. He only chose seven. Why? Those seven are sufficient. John is all you need. We have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, we have Paul's writings. John is all you need. You could read John and come to saving faith. That's why we have those little John booklets we handed out when we first started this. You can give that some to somebody and say, this can lead you to saving faith. It's not insufficient. Seven amazing miracles by Christ, it's sufficient. That's all we need. I found a very fitting quote to end this. John D.A. Carson gives us sort of the purpose of John's gospel here. John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe. They would believe certain propositional truth. The truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. The Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. It's directed toward the goal of personal eschatological salvation that by believing you may have life in his name. That is still the purpose of this book today and at the heart of the Christian mission. We've looked at this purpose statement several times. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole reason John has written this gospel. That's the whole reason Jesus rose from the dead, that you may have life and have life in his name. Amen? been such a great study. We do have one chapter left. We've seen the resurrected Jesus, but John wants to wrap this up slightly different. He's going to end with a kind of a snapshot of what it looks like then to follow Jesus. If, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, these things are written so that you may believe and you can have life in his name. And he's going to follow that up with, and this is what it looks like to follow him. And it's not a burden. So don't miss the next couple of weeks and we'll wrap up this amazing gospel. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you for this gospel, that John was an eyewitness to these truths, that he just chose a few of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, one to a weeping Mary, one to 10 distraught 
disciples and one to a doubting man named Thomas. And Lord, I'm sure we can find ourselves um, identifying with any one of these people, any number of them. Maybe we're doubting, maybe we're uh, fearful, or maybe we're unsure. And Lord, I just pray as you are such a gracious God, you would meet us where we are at. If there are any here today who have just doubted all their lives, show them yourself, Lord, that they might be believing and not unbelieving. If there are any here who have, Lord, just feared following you, put their fears to rest. It is great joy to follow you, joy inexpressible because we have the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls in believing in you. Lord, I just pray that you would move mightily in the hearts of your people today, that we would not forget the depths that you plunged into this world to save us, the pain that you experience, the loneliness, the agony, all of those things that you might redeem a people for yourself. And God, I just thank you so much for the picture that we were given today of your gracious spirit, Lord. What a gracious and loving God. And I thank you for John's eyewitness account, ironclad, so, so true. Lord, we can read it centuries later and see the resurrected Jesus. Thank you for letting us see you today. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.